situation where there was a spacing stripping the priest in the altar. They're going to merge into one. We're getting into a lot of good stuff now, I think. We're getting what was going to be starting tonight. Last week, we led into it. I'm going to do a little bit of a review. But what is the vision of the church now? What is the church teaching on the liturgy for us today? Important to know the history. Where did we come from? And it's all a continuum. And there's reasons for it. But there's a reason for where we are today. Hi, Harrison. Hi, Laura. I think by the end of the course, I hope it'll all make sense. That's the goal. Doug is here. Robert. Rob is here. Rob is here. Robert is here. We have three Roberts in this class. I just realized. Except you're Bob. See, I learned something last year. You're Bob. We have Anthony, we have Lucas, we have Daniel. Hi, Daniel. How are you? Good. Stephen is here. Doug is here. Dan Condon is here. He's here. Okay. He just stepped up for us. Okay. So let's see. Hi, Govinda. How are you? Hi, Jackie. Oh, wait. Hi, Thomas. 
see. Anthony Harrison, Jackie Thomas, Govinda. Let's see who we're missing. Okay. Um, Laura Vincente Gomez. I saw her sign on before. Ah, there she is. Hi, Laura. Aldemar, how are you? Good. Very good. All right. All right. I think everybody who's going to be here on time, a couple of people are going to be late. Harrison, Mariah. Oh, Carlos Lindau. I don't see him yet. Okay. Bill Meyer is going to be late. Miguel, you're not here yet. Okay. Uh, Laura Papa, Jackie. All right, good enough. Good enough. Everybody who's supposed to be in here is here because Anthony's up there, so he's not in his usual seat. <laughs> uh, Bob. Oh, Barbara Mackin is not here. Right. Stephen Maldante, Paul, Benny, Robert, Daniel. Okay, we're good. We're good enough. Right? Great. We made it to midterm. Yes. Alive. <laughs> Alive. And smiling. Don't know about that. Oh, come on. <laughs> I see smiling. Um, let me get back in camera view. Uh, the one thing. Ah, here she is. Sorry. No, it's okay. We died in the dark yet. See? And was just taking attendance. Good. Awesome. The one thing regarding midterm. Um, and I'm so happy that I, some of you got back to me. When I receive your midterm, I will always respond and say received, even if it's short and sweet, because if I do it on my phone, because I want you to know. And uh, one of you actually said, uh, I got an email saying, did you get my paper? And I didn't. So that was brilliant. So if you don't hear back from me in 24 hours, that means I didn't get your email. So that's always, don't feel that you're being a pest. Uh, get back to me. You know, that's important because I will always say I received your paper. And then once I open it, if I have any issues opening it, I'll let you know. All right, because I didn't, I have to be honest, I didn't open them all yet. That's my weekend project uh, to look at your, I'm excited. I'm, I'm one of these crazy people that loves to grade assignments. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I'm always excited to see, you know, what you learned, and uh, I don't know, I just like to do it. Um, so anyway, does anybody have any questions? I think I received most of them, but you do have till midnight if I didn't get it yet, you know. And I know that I put that um, little blurb about extensions. Um, Two weeks notice, technically, according to our policy, because I'm supposed to get an extension approved. Um, but emergencies happen, things happen. So, but in general, in general, um, I'm trying to give you assignments two weeks ahead at least so that you have the time to do it. And anyway, that being said, you know what you have to do as grad students, right? So, let's see. We are now officially two weeks 
termite on our <laughs> on our syllabi, but syllabus, but that's okay because uh, I'm going to work it out one way or another. But right now, and I'll firm it up at the end, but uh, I'm going to actually, I tried to find time to do it yesterday, but your um, syllabus, I really want to clean it up and revise it just to put everything with uh, moving forward with the right dates. Because if I'm confused, you might be too. Um, and I'll just put it in files and it'll say, and it'll just be the um, course outline, not the whole syllabus. Uh, but I'll try to do that before next Wednesday. But the way it looks, the week of December, the uh, December 15th, currently I have a question mark uh, that we probably need to have class because we're off for the holy day, uh, December 8th. So we probably, I'm guessing, will have class on the 15th. But you know what? Everybody else will be here taking, if they're having an in-class final, yours is take-home so we can have class. So be prepared. That's all I want you to know for tonight. How's that sound? Sounds good? All right. So um, let us, uh, unless any, hi, Bill, you made it. Yes. Awesome. Look at you all dressed up right, for your board meeting. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Okay. Uh, let me just look at the screen for a minute. I want to make sure uh, I don't see Miguel. It's not here. Hmm. Sent him an email today. Make sure everything's all right. Okay. All right. Uh, let's begin with prayer. <clears throat> that always makes us, focuses us a little bit. Well, we have another beautiful saint today. You know, we're really paying attention to all liturgical calendar in this class. Uh, we want to, I want to instill in you a sense of the liturgical year. And I think that's important. And that's why I'm choosing uh, prayers according to that, that we start. So I think, um, I don't know about you, but I've been inundated with meetings and lots of crazy stuff, but all wonderful. So I think that forgetting about everything we left behind is the best thing we could do when we enter into this space um, and we can be together uh, to learn, uh, to discuss, to wonder, to uh, engage in theological studies is a beautiful thing. So we forget about everything we left behind and everything we're going back to, uh, especially if some of you have to finish your midterm <laughs> tonight. <laughs> um, so we gather here uh, this evening on um, the memorial of St. Paul of the Cross. And from my research, I didn't know a lot about him. I actually probably discovered him last year while at mass and it was mentioned and then I, but he is pretty much the founder of the Passionist community, which is a beautiful thing. And we have a faculty member, Father David um, Monaco, thank you. 
uh, who is a fashionist. He doesn't always wear his habit, but when he does, I always tell him, I love when you wear that. Uh, it's like part of his identity. But anyway, so this is the collect uh, from this morning's, today's liturgy. And so uh, we ask for the intercession of St. Paul of the Cross. So let us pray. May the priest, St. Paul, whose only love was the cross, obtain for us your grace, O Lord, so that urged on more strongly by his example, we may each embrace our own cross with courage. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So, so tonight, let me give you a little preview of what my plan is, and then I will engage you. Let me find my cursor. Where is it? Okay. We have arrived at the Second Vatican Council. Isn't that exciting? So exciting. Um, we're going to look at um, what led to, and we'll look at and explore Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the dogmatic constitution on the sacred liturgy. This document basically is what the church teaches about the liturgy. This is it, all right? So um, the date that it was promulgated was December 4th, 1963. We know, I'm sure, or we see that the Second Vatican Council was from 1963 to 65. Some of us were not uh, here yet. Some of us were very small and little, and we might remember some of it. Um, I was in grammar school, uh, so I remember bits and pieces of things going on. Um, some people look at it as exciting, some people don't. I want to raise the enthusiasm for this um, because, as I said, this is the church's teaching on the liturgy, no matter what anybody says, this is it. So we're going to look at a framework for understanding the role of the liturgy in the life of the church. That was a major theme um, of this document. Um, theological foundations of the document and pastoral principles. We have to always remember that the Second Vatican Council, and some of you I know who have had ecclesiology already while well, I know others haven't but the Second Vatican Council was a pastoral council it was very much in tune with the life of the church uh, the people of God um, uh, John the, just a little background John the 23rd announced um, that he wanted to have a council very shortly after being elected Pope. And from what I have read, his closest advisor said, don't do it. It's a big undertaking, it's huge. 
So many uh, commentaries will tell us that this was a council called by the Holy Spirit because it came out of the prayer of John the 23rd. And I think that's an amazing thing because logically speaking, people told him his closest advisor said, I don't think it's a good idea, but he did it anyway. That tells you something about his own discernment and his own prayer life that led him to it. And we, I firmly believe no matter who's the Pope, we have to trust that they are the vicar of Christ on earth. And that's why we need to pray for our Pope every single day. All right. So, so that's just a little bit of background on the council. Uh, so tonight we have this um, opportunity to look at this part of this one document because everything else that comes on our syllabus outline after tonight is going to reflect back to the document. So as you will see, as I take you through it, we're, we're going to probably only look at the first, the introduction in the first two chapters. All right, because we will look at the third chapter, which is other sacraments when we talk about sacramental theology. All right, make sense? Okay, so here's an outline of what I hope, I hope to do tonight, all right? A um, little bit of background on the Second Vatican Council. The general condition of the liturgy in the 19th and early 20th century. Now, we did a little bit of this last week and the week before, uh, but it, I do because we skipped last week um, because of M Monsignor Curran, uh, the mass for him. So I just want to just uh, bring you back to where we left off because it's really the prelude to what we are starting tonight. Um, the role of the liturgical movement, which was our last uh, session that we had. In reviving interest in the liturgy as a focus for pastoral concern. All right, again, you see that word pastoral coming up, care of the people. All right. Um, we'll look at some reforms. We'll revisit some reforms that I already introduced you to that happened prior to the council. And that's very important to keep in the back of your mind that the Second Vatican Council set in motion things that were going on a hundred years before, all right? And that's why I introduced you to the liturgical movement and then going backwards, all of that history. But there were stirrings of what was finally set in motion. So again, what a lot of people view as being brand new was not so new. And that's important to understand. And then we're going to look at some uh, selected um, paragraphs from Sacrosanctum Concilium, but I really highly recommend that you read the whole document. Now, let me just clarify. I think I sent you a link on your yeah so you can print it out or do put it on your computer whatever and those of you who are ambitious enough to uh, i know some of you bought liturgy documents you have it it depends everybody find their own good order i like books some people do great 
whatever you want to do, I don't care as long as you're reading. All right? So that's the plan. Okay? Um, all right. So let me just, again, this is a little bit of a review, but I think we need, we, you know, I always like with each week to set some context. Um, and that means stepping back a little bit. So liturgy in general. Okay. And one of the things I think is important, uh, Carlos Lindau, you're not here yet, right? Okay. Um, he has it in the notes because he sent me an email asking me a question about this. But one of the things that I think in general, but our focus is the liturgy. Sometimes we tend to want to define things, you know, like what's the definition? I prefer to say, let's find the meaning. That's broader. Definitions are kind of narrow, but meaning, I mean, you can really explore and get such a depth when you're looking at meaning. So when we're looking at the meaning of the liturgy, all right, and uh, the meaning of the liturgy comes uh, for us in the contemporary Roman Catholic Church, comes from uh, this document. But liturgy in general proclaims and celebrates what God is doing among us and for us. This is the language of this document. Prior to this document, we didn't understand that language of celebrating, that we were participating in the celebration of the Eucharist or the Sacrament of Reconciliation, that it's a celebration. I always remember teaching an adult education class in a parish 30 years ago, and this one man was in awe of the fact that he was participating in a celebration. That's a beautiful thing. It changed everything for him. But this is not the language that we used prior to this document, right? Um, so that's important. Liturgy proclaims and celebrate what God is doing. I think you might remember from the first week, I talked about liturgy as being prayer. Uh, it's public prayer. It's ritual prayer. But all prayer is first and foremost God's initiative, right? Not us. Our prayer is our response to God in our life. So that's important, what God is doing. And if you remember the first week, we talked about the whole literal meaning of liturgy, the work of the people, but it's really God, it's God's work. It's God's work. Okay? So the other thing up here I have, liturgy connects us to the ever-present God and offers us a hope-filled pattern for living and dying. That's important. Liturgy connects us to God who is active and present in our life. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Beautiful. And offers us a hope-filled pattern for life. I wrote a whole dissertation on that because I that resonates so much. And I just have to interject here, uh, Dr. Gabriel Moran, uh, who was um, 
a scholar among scholars, the most brilliant intellectual I think I ever met in my life. Uh, he taught at NYU, he taught, well, he taught so many places, but his most recent place he taught was NYU, philosophy of education. But anyway, he just died on Friday night. Um, but he inspired the language that I used in my doctoral dissertation, that the Paschal Triduum teaches us how to live and how to die. Because as an educator, this is just a little aside, but it applies to the liturgy. As an educator in his book, he actually wrote a book on his deathbed. He wrote his memoir. I just ordered it from Amazon. But anyway, um, in his book, Showing How, talking about teaching, specifically teaching about uh, religious beliefs, no matter what they are, okay? Because he was a great in, um, uh, teacher of interreligious uh you know, we could teach Muslims, Jews about what it meant to be connected to your religious heritage. But anyway, without taking too much time, he would say to teach is to show someone how to do something. Then he would go on and elaborate on that. So he would say, in essence, to teach is to show someone how to live. Okay, then he would elaborate a little more. And he talked about death. And he talked about death as not being the end, but death is part of life. So then his conclusion was to teach means to show someone how to live and how to die. That set off my whole dissertation that I felt the Pascal Triduum did that for us. So uh, I honor Dr. Moran with everything that I do, because he taught me so much. So uh, stick him in a little prayer. He's gonna be buried. Uh, he was a Christian brother, and then he had left and he got married uh, to Maria Harris, who was a, another brilliant scholar. And uh, she died sadly in 2005. And he reconnected with the Christian brothers as an affiliate member. So he's being buried in Rhode Island with the Christian brothers. So that meant a lot to him, but anyway. Um, that whole pattern for living and dying, he connected so much with uh, education that is theological, etc. So this is my own words that uh, is here that I couldn't help but offer them to you about liturgy. This action of the church, very important, action. We're going to see that throughout this document, that liturgy is an action. It's something we do. Right? This action of the church that gathers the people together. Sound familiar from the first century? You need to know the history. Discloses rich meaning when we dare to leave the comfort zone of the rational and enter into the imaginative sphere, sphere where we find the hidden embrace of God's presence. Now, if you remember the last time we were together, <coughs> It came up in a response I gave to somebody, but that faith needs imagination. And when I said that imagination doesn't mean fantasy, it means another way of thinking. It means digging deep. And liturgy invites us to do that, to think and act in a different way. In other words, leaving the rational 
behind and entering into a different world, so to speak. Remember, it's the foretaste of the heavenly liturgy. I'm going to read that where it's actually spelled out for us in the document. So we have to allow ourselves to put the rational beside, enter into liturgy that is timeless, you know, and where God is acting and speaking to us in so many different ways and is present to us. And we're going, I think we're going to see that spelled out as we look. And uh, again, this document is highly traditional. Don't let anybody tell you it is not. It is highly traditional. And it's based on uh, the wonderful tradition of our church. And again, that's why I had to look at the, we had to look at the history first. Okay. So by way of review, okay, we looked at, we already looked at the liturgical movement, very exciting. Yes. Is that Carlos? I don't see Carlos, but I heard him. Hi, this is me, Carlos. Sorry, my microphone. Okay, but I, I don't see your video. Okay, give me a chance. I'll be, oh, I'll yeah, be, take I'll... your time. As long as I know you're here, but I want to see you. Okay. Um, so the liturgical movement is the context for reform, as we looked at the last time, all right? We, we went into detail, all right? But that's the context for the reform that was set in motion with the uh, Second Vatican Council. Um, again, by way of uh, bringing us to this topic, as I mentioned the last time we met, attempts at reform began following the Council of Trent. But again, if you remember, liturgically, nothing happened, pretty much. Nothing. Um, enthusiasm grew, remember, with the French monk Garanger at the Abbey at Salem, very important uh, influence. And then the movement spread throughout Europe. And then uh, Wonderful Virgil Michael brought all the knowledge to the United States. Um, and remember that the aim was to bring the ideal of full active participation of all people in the liturgy. If you remember, active participation was the hallmark of the liturgical movement. It, it, it was, and we're going to see how now that's etched in stone here in this document. Um, it was an attempt to recover a deeper sense of the tradition. Again, highly traditional, which is so important for us to understand. Um, it was meant to stir a deeper sense of discipleship and what that meant as the baptized. It also valued what was the doctrine as we already looked at the mystical body of Christ. All right. So all of the language that we're going to see, and I tried really to highlight a lot of this from uh, the Second Vatican Council document on the liturgy, the context comes from this liturgical movement, which was a time of, 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 
gathering resources that were finally available. And scholars were interested and were studying this. And if it wasn't for these early pioneers, I would, ha um, I would have to say it'd be harder to have this beautiful document we have because they worked, as I told you tirelessly, poor Virgil Michael, you know, it, it, it affected his health and his well-being that he was so committed to it, but they all were. So the bottom line is that the liturgy was in need of reform. And it wasn't something that happened overnight. It was something that was brewing for a very long time. And again, I use that language. It was set in motion by the Second Vatican Council. And I reiterate that because there is such a misunderstanding that things changed overnight and we just changed everything. Well, we didn't. We didn't change it overnight. It was based on um, very firm, clear um, scholarship and research and resources that were finally available. Resources that we looked at early on in this course, like the Didache and all of that. Finally, be, people found it. And that was one of the phrases of the Second Vatican Council went back to the sources. And that's important to know because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And as graduate students here, we, we want to equip you with, with the truth of and what the church, thinking with the mind of the church. Remember, we, we've used that phrase. We want to think with the mind of the church. So the bottom line is that the liturgy was in need of reform. And I just made some lists here, a list here, and we talked about some of this already. But the priests prayed in a language that we didn't understand. Um, the priest, priest prayers were not audible. We didn't hear his prayers. And I was talking to a priest just last week about this, and he said that many would do it as quickly as possible, didn't pronounce the Latin even correctly, and would just get through it as fast as possible. You know, and he was barely being honest about his brother priests, <laughs> you know. Um, the, so therefore that led to the assembly, which we didn't call an assembly then, uh, praying their own devotions. And we've talked about this before. Um, the choir sang alone. Pretty much, the, the assembly was not engaged in song of any kind, uh, the, and the responses were said only by the servers, altar servers. And this is an important point because some people will say, "Well, we had our missiles to follow, where we could follow. Then we were engaged. We were following a missile." But my research tells me that we didn't have these missiles until the 40s and 50s. All right, so we didn't have them. If we go back further than that. And not everybody had a missile. You know, I remember in grammar school having a missile so you could follow. And then the English was on, whatever. I still have them at home, as a matter of fact. Um, the other thing is more than one mass was going on at one time. And that is kind of an abomination. 
quite frankly, <laughs> you know, um, and preaching was unrelated to scripture. All right. And we're going to follow a lot of this up with now what is set in motion by the council. Done. You say more than one mass at a time. You're talking about the side altar? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that would not be allowed in any way, shape, or form. Now we have con celebration. There was no con celebration then. You know? All right, so I just wanted to give you an idea that it's important to know that, uh, and I, the next slide has some more things. Let me go through this first. I'm just trying to show you that we were, the liturgy was indeed in need of reform. All right? Uh, unless, I don't think John the 23rd would have went to all this trouble of calling a council, seriously. Basically, and I, I had this in my mind before, he really felt that the church had very little influence on the lives of the people. That was one of his reasons, that he really wanted to help engage people, not only in the liturgy, but in the life of the church. And as we're going to read, there's this connection of liturgy and life, you know, that we're gonna, we're gonna see here, that you see in this document. But he really felt that the church was here and people's lives were here. Now, we could say that probably today. And I really think that it's the job of pastoral ministers of, you know, when every, whether it's priests, deacons, laymen and women in leadership, whatever the case is, to help people to understand that liturgy and life are meant to be connected. We have to be good connectors that the litur liturgy has everything to do with life, okay? Um, on the next slide here, some other reasons for reform. The seasons of the liturgical year were lost, all right? So I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. If, uh, if it was a saint's feast day on a Sunday, that took precedence. That doesn't happen now. Sunday is primary. You know, for, I'll give you an example. Um, the uh, Vigil Mass on October 31st cannot be Mass for the next day because All Saints Day, no, Sunday takes precedence. All right. No weekday lectionary. Okay, now we have a weekday lectionary. Sunday lectionary was only a one-year cycle. We have three a, B, and C, right? Just, this is the biggest thing, I think. Distribution of communion happened several times during a mass. Outside of mass, even, at the end of mass, we even did that in some place, some diocese during the pandemic. Mass finished and then communion was distributed. But it was like that all the time. And even given out in like 25 minute, 15 or 25 minute intervals. So, you know, it, so it was kind of a hodgepodge, so just, you know, for lack of a better term. So that was in need of reform, right? It wasn't given out during the communion rite. Only the priest received communion during the communion rite, right? Priests were not well educated in liturgy, sadly to say, but it wasn't part of their seminary training. What, what basically did they learn about? We said it last time. Anybody remember the word? 
What did a priest learn? What's the word? Starts with an R. Rubrics. Yeah, that's it. Nothing about liturgical theology, nothing. Basically, people prayed at Mass. They did not pray the Mass. That's the basic difference here. All right, so that's just a little, uh, and there's several, probably a hundred more reasons I could give you, but that's some of the highlights of a liturgy in need of reform. This is, you know, when we think about it, liturgy is just, as we'll see in the document, it's so integral to who we are as the baptized. And it, that was not clear to people prior to this reform. So this prophetic vision, active participation, as I mentioned, was the heart and soul of the liturgical movement. And remember the tradition of the liturgy, scripture, early liturgical texts, the writing of the church fathers that we all looked at in those opening weeks. To give you a sense in broad strokes of the history that I think you can see through that study of the history that these reforms that we'll read about in Sacrosanctum Concilium will, you're going to see some connections, I think. I know I do. All right, and I'm trying to bring some out here. You good? Making sense? Okay. There's just so much to say, and I'm trying to make it think so we can get through it. But last time we were together, I mentioned Mediatridae, the 1947 document, Pius XII. But the door is basically opened for reform with that document, for better or for worse. Some scholars say, I was just reading actually today, it didn't go far enough. But you know, my opinion is, for its time, it was revolutionary because it's the first document that we have on the liturgy. Um, so I, I really do think that whatever was said there was excellent for its time. So he opens the door and the idea of reform develops because of Mediator Day, 1947, okay? Um, and. Uh, I just have highlighted there paragraph 80 that says all of the faithful should be aware that to participate in the Eucharistic sacrifice is their duty and supreme dignity. We're going to see that echoed in Sacrosanctum Concilium, Vatican II. So you can see where he was really on the right track at that time. Okay. Um, after this document, and this is well before the Second Vatican Council, that's the point I want you to get, that these reforms started to develop way before the council even opened, okay? A commission was established, and a commission is a group of people that understand a particular topic, this being liturgy, and a commission is formed to help to further the study 
and look to see where we can go with this. We have commissions to this day. In our diocese, the Archdiocese of New York, there's a liturgy commission, there's a music commission. You know, there's, um, I'm on a commission, it's called an advisory board, but it's a commission for the right of Christian initiation of adults, people who are experts that can help further implementation in something. So here we have a commission set up in 1948, a year after Midi Day. So this commission would take this document and say, okay, now what steps can we take to make this document a reality? All right? And very important to the start of this reform is we have the Easter Vigil. I've mentioned this before. Pius the um, Twelfth um, uh, reforms the Easter Vigil, which I, th I think I mentioned before. The Easter Vigil used to be celebrated on Holy Saturday morning. Uh, that just doesn't make any sense, right? An Easter Vigil in the morning and only clergy were present. So the Catholic people at the time had no idea that an Easter Vigil even existed. And we all know, we've all, I'm sure, been to an Easter Vigil, our most ancient liturgy, and it is so rich and so meaningful to our lives. Um, can you imagine not having it, right? And then Holy Week, uh, the reforms of Holy Week started in 1955. Because when we talk about the liturgical year, I'll explain more about that, particularly when we talk about the Triduum um, and Lent and Holy Week and the Triduum, that that'll make more sense, a little bit of historical background there. But um, I mean, I owe my whole dissertation that I wrote on the Triduum to Pius XII, basically, because he started. I, one of the yeah. books I was required to read was uh, From Enemy to Brother. And it talked about the World War II uh, being a, a major push for Vatican II and all of what you see up there. That's an excellent point um, regarding uh, Pius XII set these reforms of Holy Week in motion because he felt that people were losing hope after two world wars. And he felt that the liturgy particularly of Holy Week, could offer them hope. Because what more speaks of hope than the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? So that was very much on his mind, what people had lived through. So that's an excellent, excellent point. Dr. Eschenel, can I, can I just add to that? Yes, please, yes. Remarkably, I had this conversation earlier this afternoon with Bishop DiMarzio, and we were okay. talking about Vatican II. Okay. And he made this exact point. He said, right after World War II, he said, he said, think back what Europe was like at that time. It was in ruins, you know. And so, because, and frankly, it was great because my perspective is always from the United States perspective. But, but you, and he said, and and basically, Rome and the Vatican was really all Europe had, um, and it was. And that's what that's where they that's where they began. Um, exactly. You know, because because Europe was in ruins. Mm -hmm. And and he was saying that it was actually it was the period leading up to Vatican. This is what this is where what ended with Vatican II. This is where it began. 
Absolutely. The real push for this. And I think the mind of uh, Pius XII in recognizing where people are at, you know, um, after two world wars, you know, you could just imagine what that would be like, or maybe it's hard to imagine for us, but what it was like for them. And he wanted through the church, through the prayer of the church, to offer hope. So to me, that's a major, major thing. And I think we could keep that in mind for us today, living through a pandemic, you know, and there's this whole, um, the great fear in the church is right now getting people to come back to church. So many people are not back yet. But, and so many people are losing hope and feeling hopeless and all of that. But what can the church do? And I think, you know, and it's kind of new now, but, you know, Pope Francis calling for this synod on synodality, which mean, which is an ancient term meaning walking together, dreaming together, you know, is um, something that I think he has in mind to really help people to, to uh, regain hope. I mean, I think every one of us, uh, we, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, I know that, but we're all here and we've all lived through a pandemic and we've um, all had our experiences of things happening, but as people of hope, you know, I think we've made it through or we're making it through yet still or i don't think you'd all be here well and that was and that was i'm sorry to jump in again but that was a point that we were discussing today was that with this synod um in some respects now we are at the beginning of the second phase of vatican ii if you look at councils take a hundred years um so so the synod is actually in some respects now going to be a could be seen as a, a kicking off point for what is now the executional side of Vatican II. It's what you said earlier about how do we make it a reality? Um, and, and, and that's, and that's I mean, certainly here in Brooklyn, that's what we're planning uh, now for. Um, but it, it was at, at that exact point that, that, that the synod is now the, the kicking off point for the execution of or, or implementation, I should say, not execution, but implementation. Yeah, you, you know, Bill, I love it when you affirm me with your bishop's words. <laughs> <laughs> I say, okay, it's good, because I'm very intent of thinking with the mind of the church, you know? Um, I take that very seriously, and I think that Pope Francis, and when we look at his um, motu proprio, um, on the liturgy specifically, we'll get to that. But I think that he really wants to make the church of the Second Vatican Council more concrete in the lives of people. I really think so. And, yeah. and, and I applaud him for that because we are living, he fears this division, you know, that, and that's why I said like there are, you know, for better or for worse, this is the church. And I say that because there are so many people that say, oh, the Second Vatican Council was ridiculous, it was this, it was that. That's not true. This is the church. This this is the teaching.
right to say it's not. That's the bottom line, being really emphatic here. But this is the church. And anybody who is saying that this is all wrong is very misinformed and listening to the wrong people. All right? Why would anybody I mean, even, why would anybody even say something like that? Thinking it through. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Bill, finish, and then Anthony. I want to hear. What I was saying was really not contemplating it and thinking and thinking it through and, and putting it and, and really trying to understand what we are right in the middle of right now. And and, and you, you can see everything like what we've covered for the in this course, especially looking back historically, as just one series of progression. Um, that's why I love when you, you talk about suspending, you know, uh, using imagination and suspending reason. You really have to do that in order to contemplate this as in its whole. Um, and it takes academics. You know, Bishop DiMarzio is an, is an academic. And yeah, it takes, it takes a, a lot of thought. A systematic study to, to, to be really to be able to approach this properly. I mean, with all due respect, people can do all the reading on their own they want, but very often that leads to misinformation and not good resources. But when you have a systematic study, in my own experience, everything changes. This is transformative learning, what we have here. Yeah. You know, Anthony, you wanted to add. Yeah, no, I just, you know, just to add what what Bill said, he's absolutely, it's an evolution. The liturgy is an evolution. Like you said, it's a verb. It's not a noun. Right. So, um, you know, that's 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 really the major thing. Um, other than that, I'm, I'm not exactly sure why people would, you know, be so vehemently against, you know, the teachings of Vatican II if they call themselves Catholics and they buy into the fact that, you know, liturgy and religion is evolutionary. It, it's not a static, it's not a static um, component. It's, it's something that is alive and, and keeps moving. I mean, if it didn't, then Christ would never, you know, accomplish the things that he accomplished. To use the word of Pope Benedict, it's in continuity, which, again, studying the history, looking at documents like Mediator Day, it shows you how we didn't erase all that. We just developed from it for our time, you know. Um, for example, the Second Vatican Council, it's nothing new. We just use different words, you know different words for our time, for the modern age, you know, and the, but we didn't change doctrines. We didn't change what liturgy is supposed to be. It goes back to where it was in the early centuries. And you're going to see that and you're going to hear the language uh, of that. I hope as you hear it and then read it on your own as well, but it's, and it is in continuity. And that's important. Pope Benedict was absolutely right about that. You know, um, that even when you uh, read these documents, all you have to do is look at the footnotes, scripture, documents of past popes, you know, uh, any document in the church, not only the liturgy documents. So it's not like these 
new crazy ideas. It's, it's, it, that's why I say this is traditional, tradition at its best. Um, that's great. This, that, that is why the need for information and formation, as we've been talking about, is so great right now. Because I'll tell you what, Anthony, two or three years ago, I would have been in that camp that you just described. I was of the mind that Vatican II is what had had uh, had caused this demise, if you will, uh, or got to the church to the state that it was in. I was in that camp. Hmm, and it's only since I, I came here and it's only since I really started to learn and I was really brought into and in, in, in the courses that I'm taking here that uh, that I really and, and thought about it and and understood things better and in, in many respects have been going through a period of, uh, or a process of formation that I've come to understand that it is in fact you know a, a great progression that we're in the middle of not a demise um, but I would have definitely been what you described Anthony when you were just saying that I would say that was me Ask Govinda, she knows me. <laughs> I was in that camp. I was in that camp. Yeah. And I was on the pastoral council in my parish telling people this. Exactly. And, and a lot of people are in that situation. You know, um, we often use, you, I think you've heard me say this before, forgive me, but it's important. We often use the words liberal and conservative in the church. And they are words borrowed from the political world. And it's my opinion, but it's also, I've read this in commentaries, it's not helpful in the church to use those words. In the church, there's orthodoxy or not. That's the bottom line. And commentaries, and when I say commentaries, I'm talking about scholars of liturgy in our case would tell you that if we're using those words, that this, what we're talking about here is deeply conservative, meaning it's tradition at its best. If you want to use those words, I don't like using those words. I don't find them helpful. It labels, oh, he's conservative. Oh, he's liberal. It's divisive and it's being used and it's divisive and it's being used more and more now. I it's yes. And it drives me crazy. Um, it drives me crazy. I did a workshop. Oh my gosh, I guess I could tell you this. I said it publicly. I did a workshop on Saturday at the Forum for the Archdiocese on music for first sacraments. And I used the guidelines of the Archdiocese, all right, that are solid. Solid. And there's a list of hymns. <laughs> you know it. And somebody in the group who was a little outspoken said, well, whoever put this list together must must be very conservative. And I gave them the spiel that I just gave you. You know, these are solid hymns, solid theology, because that's what I was trying to get at. That the hymns we use need to be based on good theology. How do you choose hymns for, in the case of the workshop, it was for sacraments. But this is very important and people don't understand it and that there are some bad hymns out there that are used. So anyway, um, it is, it's very divisive and they're, they're really, it's, it's, I think when you understand this, 
I think that it's going to give you the language that you need to ex express it. That's one of the most important things of education is to have the language, the proper language, the language of the church, that if, if it needs explanation, and let's say you're teaching, uh, you know, um, in a catechetical program or adult faith formation, or for those of you who are going to be deacons or are deacons are going to be priests, you are going to be preaching that you're using the proper language. It's important to, to know how to express this in the richest way possible. And the church gives us such rich language. Um, anyway, that's great. Thank you for your uh, thought. Before we go to break, in um, like about 15 minutes, I'll open it up for more questions. So Pope John the 23rd, now uh, saint, continues the process uh, that I explained when we opened up. And the council was announced in 1959. And I think it's just interesting to see that and then see the, you know, going backwards with the liturgical movement you know, going back to the, you know, 19, um, 19th century and early 20th century uh, led the way. And I love this. Uh, this is his opening address to the council. And I just uh, think it's uh, profound. He says, it is but natural that in opening this universal council, that's what um, it means when we say the Second Vatican Council is an ecumenical council, it was universal for the world, right? We should like to look to the past. That is important. That we look to the past and to listen to its voices. So right there, it shows you that he wasn't throwing away the past in no way. He wanted to get to the heart of the past and reappropriate it for our time from the modern world. These are solemn and venerable voices throughout the East and West from, sorry for the typo. Uh, I, I'm not a very good when I type, I'm not good. And spell check doesn't pick it up if it's a word. Uh, from the fourth century to the middle ages. So he wasn't throwing any of that away. He was bringing it up to today and from um, there to modern times. I mean, if you get a chance, Google that whole document, his whole address uh, to really get a sense of, I would have loved to have been there. <laughs> That's all I could say. To me, it must have been wonderful uh, to hear this. Remember, if you, you know, again, those of you who studied ecclesiology, you wanted to open the doors, open the windows, you know, and really um, let the fresh air in. So um, this is a quote from Sister Julia Upton. Um, she was the provost at St. John's University for years. A wonderful liturgist. She happened to have been a reader on my dissertation, <laughs> but wonderful writer, uh, scholar, uh, researcher into the history, particularly of the liturgical movement. But um, this is a quote from her, and I just, it always just um, resonates with me. Radical as the changes were, 
it is a mistake to look to the Vatican Council II as the beginning for our consideration of liturgical studies. See, some people think that it was the beginning, but it wasn't. It was this continuum, this continuation of going deeper. And that was um, just an essay she wrote in this. Uh, I cited the collection for you, so you have it. Okay? Uh, another resource, Annabelle Bugnini. Uh, I didn't bring it because I couldn't fit it in my bag, but it's a book that's this thick. And you can look at it in the library if you're interested. The Reform of the Liturgy, 1948 to 1975. And he really um, explores exactly what happened in detail. Um, and it's a beautiful resource. It's a resource that I've used in some essays I've written on this topic. Um, but he talks about 12 years of um, meetings and research, 82 meetings. These are those commissions that were formed, right? First fruits, the reform of the Easter Vigil in Holy Week. I already mentioned that. Three years before the Second Vatican Council, a Congress was held in Assisi to discuss the pastoral nature of the liturgy. So what I'm trying to show you here that there were things preparing for this. A lot of study, meetings, conversations, it just didn't happen overnight. So after the official announcement of the council in 1959, another commission now is formed in 1960. And then subcommissions are also formed to explore the sacred liturgy, the mass, sacraments, use of Latin, liturgical formation, participation, sacred music, and sacred art. All of this was important. Um, so when you think of what went into just this aspect of the council, because there are so many other things that were, uh, you know, set in motion, and we're talking about one thing here, the liturgy of the church, right? Okay, but so if you're really interested someday, uh, you can look at the Bugnini book and really see um, all the details that happened because he was there okay and there's not too many people left who were there i was reading recently i guess benedict will be the last yeah. he'll be the last one who was actually there before the council opened oops these commissions met several times, and by 1962, a draft, Dan, a draft, see, <laughs> of the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy was ready. All right? This is significant, and that basically is why, you see the next bullet point, liturgy appeared first on the council's agenda because all the work that was done prior, they were ready. Uh, now it seems only right, as you're gonna see, you know, liturgy is the source and summit of our life as uh, Catholic Christians, but liturgy was first on the agenda. This is providential, I think. 
you know, because they were ready. The, the commissions, the people working on it, they had everything ready. And all their ducks were lined up in a row. Um, and here we have John the 23rd in the first session on December 8th, uh, 1962. He says, it was no accident, all right, that the first schema to be considered was the one dealing with the sacred liturgy. The liturgy has to do with man's relationship with God. This relationship is of utmost importance. And again, if you're interested, you can Google and you can read his whole, uh, what he had to say during the first session, his opening address. But I, I firmly believe that, that it, was, it was no accident. Um, but practically speaking, it happened to be first on the agenda because the commissions did their work and the draft was ready, the first draft, although it did go through uh, several uh, revisions, um, as did all of them. Um, thoughts, questions, concerns? It makes no sense. <laughs> Anybody? I stumbled and, and uh, researched it for the book. Was uh, they changed the language from in the person of Jesus to the the head of Jesus? Was that to reflect the body of Jesus being the council? Or, I mean the, uh, the the parishioners. You mean the body of Christ? Well, yeah, because they changed for some reason they changed the title of the priest from in, in person of Jesus to the the. The head of Jesus. Okay. Unless yeah. I'm totally wrong. Mm -hmm. So that was probably to accentuate the fact that the parishioners were the body. Well, yeah, because the per the priest uh, celebrant is acting in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. Right, but did they change that definition on Vatican II, or maybe I just I don't read know. it wrong? I have to admit, I don't know. I'd have to check it out. I don't no, want to give you the wrong answer. It, it just seemed like they were offering like a. Um, like almost like trying to compartmentalize now him as the head and then accentuate that the Christians were the body. Well, you know, Jesus is the head and we're the body. Right. And and the priest certainly is part of the body as well. But is, you know, as we will see as we move forward, leading, certainly presiding over and celebrating. But remember, we have to remember that we're all participating in the celebration, as we will see in the language here. And you bring up a good point here, and we talked about this earlier. Remember how important the gathering, the gathered assembly was in the early church, and then it became less important. And then as we saw the last time we met, there is this recovery of the theology of the mystical body of Christ. And then we see with the Second Vatican Council, particularly, I mean, it's in this document, but particularly, the dogmatic constitution on the church highlights the fact that we are the people of God, the body of Christ, that image is recovered from the ancient church. Dr. Eschenauer? Yes. Dan is right. This is Wikipedia knowledge. This is not something that, you know, I know, but it basically... Yeah, go ahead. Are you reading? What are you reading it from? It basically says in Persona Christi is uh, an extended term... An extended term in persona Christi Capitus in the person of Christ the head was introduced by the bishops in the Vatican Council II in the decree on the ministry and, and uh, live, uh, lives of priests uh, yeah. in 65. That's a document. Yeah. Thank you. 
Very good. Thank you for that. Yeah. In ecclesiology, I'm sure you looked at several of these documents. Can I assume that? Yes. yes. Yeah. And I know some of you haven't gotten there yet, but it all fits together. I think when you look, when you understand ecclesiology, this all makes sense. In fact, there's a book. It's not on your bibliography because I just remembered it. I have to be honest with you yesterday, but it's called True Reform. Liturgy and Ecclesiology in Sacrosanctum Concilium. You know, make note of it. It's written by Massimo Fagioli, an Italian scholar. He works here in a, college, in a university in the Midwest. Uh, but here he's connecting uh, liturgy and ecclesiology, which is very important to understand who we are as the people of God, the body of Christ, because then the assembly becomes important. And it wasn't important. Everything important was happening in the sanctuary. But everything important is happening everywhere. Okay? In the during the celebration. All right, so th this is a good resource that connects liturgy and ecclesiology. All right. I also want to just mention, and this might be on your bibliography, I don't want to take time to look, but it's called Recover, Rediscovering Vatican II Liturgy uh, by Rita Ferrone. It's a commentary on the document. Um, Rita Ferrone is a scholar. She actually lives right here in Mount Vernon. Uh, she's written pretty extensively. Uh, she used to... Uh, worked for the Archdiocese years and years ago. But again, this is just a commentary um, uh, if you're, you're interested in that. Um, commentaries are good, but you have to read the document. It's, even if you read a commentary side by side, um, documents are written, I think they're poetic, they're, uh, the language is beautiful. Uh, a lot of people cringe when they hear the word document. They don't want to read them. Um, but that's the primary resource of what we hear, what the church is saying, and then go to a commentary or have it side by side if you don't understand. Well, what does it mean? And you look at a commentary. And there are several others. This is just one, you know, that you could read. And that's I think that makes a lot of sense to be able to do that, but you've got to, most people just read the commentaries and that's a mistake because in a commentary, you're, you might be getting just somebody's interpretation. And if it's, if it's a noteworthy commentary, you can depend on it. But sometimes, uh, you know, like, for example, I was reading this, another book I'll talk to you about, Beyond Pius V. And one scholar kind of says about Mediator Dei that um, he didn't go far enough, as I mentioned to you when we talked about it. But I think he went far enough for his time. But there's one scholar, hey, he didn't go far enough. Well, we can say that now, but for 1947, he, went, he pushed the envelope <laughs> in 1947. He pushed it pretty far. The first document on the liturgy, you know, I think he did a great job. So I was reading that, rereading it. Uh, you can. This is deep reading. I I don't know if 
people can see. I was talking to Robert about this. But this is what's called deep reading a book. It's tabbed. It's highlighted. It's underlined in two different colors. And for me, what that means, and I've been reading this book for about, I wrote a paper a few years ago, and I used this book. First time it's tabbed, second time I read it, it's highlighted. The third time it's underlined in black, the next time it's underlined in red. That's deep reading a book. And you go back and you go back and you go back. Some of you, like Jackie, she's in the thesis seminar. That I'm gonna give you a little prelude. Our next topic for next week is gonna be how to read a book. <laughs> There's actually a book called How to Read a Book. <laughs> so we're going to do that, Jackie. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> anyway, um, why don't we take a break? When we come back, if you have another thought or question, but look at what we're going to look at. We're going to look at exactly what's in this document. And I'm going to give you some highlights. Uh, I'm going to give you some general stuff and then some highlights. And then I'm going to trust that you're all going to read this document. And you can read it deeply. How's that sound? You good? I see thumbs up. Hi, Miguel. Good to see you. Thank you. All right, we'll see you in 10 minutes with the liturgy. I want you to, you know, constantly not be so focused on what's the definition of liturgy, but what's the meaning of it. So in the, in the big opening slides, I did some review work on that. Okay, but I thought of you because you had sent me that um, a very good question on that. So here we are. We're going to look at uh, the document. No, okay. Can you just read yeah, it? Because it just echoes down the hall. <clears throat> we want to look at what you find in uh, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. Um, and this is really a guide, if you haven't read it yet, or if you have read it, read it again. Um, you know, sometimes for me, I'll read something and then after I hear about it, I go back and read it and it even makes more sense. You know, so just keep that in mind, because this is really the heart and center of everything else that we'll do in this course. Okay? So, um... What you find when you look at the document itself, and I always find the table of contents of any ritual book or a document is extremely helpful because it shows us what's there and what's there has gives us some meaning. So, of course, there's an introduction and then chapter one is general principles for the reform and promotion of the sacred liturgy all right so that's really important that first it's going to give us some general principles about the liturgy all right um we find the nature of the liturgy and its importance in the life of the church um i mentioned this before that liturgy and life has to be connected all right, that everything that we pray in and through the liturgy has to do with who we are. 
That, that's important. And this document makes that clear. The promotion of liturgical instruction and active participation. Remember, that was the um, a key element of the liturgical movement. So the fathers of the Second Vatican Council bring that right into, and we also saw it in Mediator Day. The reform of the sacred liturgy in general, promotion of liturgical life in the diocese and parish, promotion of pastoral liturgical action. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by oh, that? Well, well, what do they mean by it? This is right out of the document. It means that, you know, this council was very concerned with the pastoral, the life of the people. So connecting that, um, promoting more of the pastoral with liturgical action. What does it have to do with the life of everyday people? And it, again, it's reiterating that connection between liturgy and life, okay? And this, again, this is new language, new language. So that's what we're gonna find in chapter one. Chapter two is the most sacred mystery of the Eucharist. So it, it remember liturgy, is beyond the mass. The celebration of the Eucharist is the mass, but liturgy is all the sacraments, right? Plus the liturgy of the hours, which we're gonna talk about in other classes. But we have to realize that liturgy is a broader term. So this chapter two focuses in on the Eucharist. And then chapter three, which we'll start to look at next time, We'll look at other sacraments and sacramentals. And then four talks about the divine office. Five, one of my favorites, the liturgical year. Six will be Aldemar's favorite, sacred music. <laughs> and seven, sacred art and sacred furnishings. And then there's an appendix. Uh, Declaration of the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council on the Revision of the Calendar. I always remember, I was a little kid at the time, but the revision of the calendar stirred people up. But they were misinterpreting because the what I remember, and as a little kid, people saying, well, St. Christopher is not a saint anymore. But it wasn't that he wasn't a saint anymore, but they redid the calendar, so he wasn't on the calendar. But he's still a saint. You know what I mean? There's a lot of saints not on the calendar. But I remember that as a little kid, people talking about, well, St. Christopher is not a saint anymore. Total misunderstanding. You know? Um, but anyway, so all, a lot of this we're going to touch on as we move along. But again, you, you need to know what you're going to find here in this document. We're, we're breaking it open. You know, breaking open a document is a really important thing. These chapters provide the nature and importance of the liturgy, okay? The norms for reform, and we, as we saw, we needed a reform. So now the church is telling us, well, what are the norms for the reform? The promotion of education, okay? and action in regard to liturgy in the parish and on the diocesan level. So it's clearly, as you'll see as we move on, 
it 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 firmly called for education in the liturgy, um, both for clergy, seminarians, clergy, and lay faithful. Okay, because this is not something that went on before. So some of the concepts that you're going to find in this document are really um, theological in nature, but the first one being Paschal Mystery, all right? Um, we didn't hear about Paschal Mystery before this. You know, it's foundational. You know, it's what it's all about. You know, the passion, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ is the heart and the center of all liturgy. And it's, and it's right here. So these are the concepts. Litur this is so beautiful. Liturgy as the source and summit of the church's life. Depending on what uh, edition of this, English edition you're looking at, some uh, editions say source and uh, font means the same thing, okay, of the church's life. Meaning, as you've heard me say before, liturgy is the most important thing we do in the church. And everything else flows uh, toward it and from it. And it, that's, that's a foundational statement. Active participation, clearly spelt out. Ecclesiology, the understanding of the church, as I said before, understanding ecclesiology helps us to understand why we do what we do at liturgy. Understanding the understanding of the church as the people of God, the body of Christ, will influence how we understand and celebrate the liturgy. So that's very important. Inculturation, all right? Different cultures and adaptation and what that means. That is a very important concept, but in some cases it's been misinterpreted, okay? It doesn't mean that we create a new ritual. It means we adapt it, whether it's to children, we would consider children a culture in this sense, or to the Hispanic community, or to the African community, whatever the case may be, okay? Renewal of liturgical books, all right, was also a concept. And again, here it is, education and formation for clergy and faithful in regard to the liturgy. So I'm going to try to look at uh, as many of these as we, we have time for, all right? Just to give you... Just a little summary, and then again, I want you to read uh, for yourself. But Paschal Mystery, so important, is the central theme here. And as we know from our history, it's an old concept. This is nothing new. That's what I meant before, there's nothing new here. This is an old concept that dates from patristic times. We talked about it earlier on. And it's found in ancient liturgies. You know, when we go back to the Didache and the teaching of the apostles, we're going to find this language, you know, of, of Jesus's um, death and resurrection, you know, as one mystery, 
in the in life, his life. Recovery from the original Greek, uh, the word is mysterium. The Latin equivalent is sacramentum. And here, what's important, because it uh, the document refers to mystery. And the ancient church referred to mystery. But this is in, it's not in the sense of like, um, you know, a mystery story or something we have to solve. This is different. Mystery here is a deep truth. The mystery of God. The sacraments are the mysteries of the church, right? Think of what we talked about in the ancient church, mystagogy. Remember the great mystagogues? Reflection on the mysteries. When we look at the rite of Christian initiation of adults, we'll look at that. what that means for um, newly initiated, but what it means for the whole church. That's a way of life, that we reflect on the mysteries. And we're talking here about a mystery that we can't touch. It's too deep, but it touches us. And it touches us deeply. Okay? So that's important. Prior to Vatican II, Christ's death on the cross uh, viewed uh, was viewed as a saving event. Christ's death and resurrection is the saving event. That's Paschal Mystery. Uh, this is a point that I made very clear in my own research, my dissertation on the, on the Paschal Triduum, that the Triduum is the celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, we're so attuned to Easter being the celebration of the resurrection, but when we look at the calendar, the reforms of 1969 restored the original meaning of those three days where we celebrated one event, death and resurrection. Not too many people know that. And you know, that kind of puzzled me when I was doing my research, because when I mentioned it to people, they looked puzzled. But you know what, I figured it out. It's really only since 19, the reforms of 1969, as we'll see when we look at the calendar year, that this was um, reclaimed and rediscovered. So that's relatively new, 1969. You know, and maybe in 100 years, people will understand it. So I had to put my mind there that um, in 1969, the church recovered this understanding of the Paschal Triduum, the Easter Triduum, celebrating the death and resurrection, Lent is over, etc. But maybe it happened in 1969, but people didn't learn about it. We didn't teach people. You know, I can remember once working in a parish and we really wanted the liturgy committee was committed to helping people to understand this, that Lent is over and the Easter Triduum or Paschal Triduum begins. So we put a little um, excerpt in the worship aid and people were coming up to us saying, this, is, this isn't right, this is wrong, you know? So we really felt like, wow, we really do need to educate this, this parish on this and we need to do it consistently here. And so my own, uh, you know, conclusion was 1969 seems like a long time ago, but it really wasn't that long ago. And how many people are doing a systematic study of the liturgical year with the history and everything, right? 
but here, we'll, we're going to do that in here when we get to it. All right? So that's important because this doc. Yes, please, Carlos. Well, quick question on the uh, Pascal mystery. Mm -hmm. um, just the fact of just the uh, the assum the assumption like the ascension uh, um, in the mass like um, you know the, I heard that the that Christ dies resurrects and ascends at the same time in the mass. When we talk about Paschal mystery, if you look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it'll say the Passion, Death, Resurrection, and Ascension. It'll say all that in the Catechism, but basically, in short form, we would say death and resurrection. Yeah, I forgot the as as an one event, not separated. That's the Easter mystery. You can't have Easter without Good Friday. You cannot. And, and we leap from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. Far too many people forgetting about the highest holy days. I'm jumping ahead. The highest holy days of the liturgical year, the Paschal Triduum. And with all due respect, this is an observation, not a judgment. Where is half of America? In Disney World. <laughs> So, Very upsetting to me. Oh, so the Paschal mystery um refers to um on um all four like passion, oh wait, suffering, death, resurrection, yes. and, and yeah, ascension. It's, yes, one mystery, all of that. Yep. So yeah, because uh, right here, although you wrote uh, you wrote down um death and resurrection, that's just a short short. That's brief. like the short form. But if you look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it'll list. Passion, death, resurrection, and ascension. So all these, all these four, um, all these four um, uh, actions or events um, happen at um, during each uh, liturgical service. Each liturgical Yes. When we go to mass, the Paschal mystery is made present for us today. That's a beautiful thing. How many people know that? I was talking to Dan about the nine days from Ascension to, to Pentecost as we get the nine days. The when we go to Mass, when we participate in the celebration of the Eucharist, and when I say Eucharist here, I mean from the gathering to the dismissal, okay? The Paschal mystery, the central theme of all liturgy, in the Mass is made present for us now, today. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And if there's any takeaway from tonight, think about that when you go to Mass tomorrow or on Sunday or whenever. Paschal mystery. Yes, Rob. All right. That's what I was talking about six weeks ago. I was standing at the time. You just summed it up. Oh, good. See, about standing, eventually I get there. Yeah, about standing at the altar. Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can feel it if you're standing there. I don't think the people that are sitting in the congregation have any concept of it. If, if they are aware. I don't think they are. But that's the problem. And this has to do with liturgical catechesis that we're all responsible for. If they are, 
And I think about that statement, Rob, that you made all the time, because when I come to Mass here, I always sit in the very last seat in the back. And I think about it all the time because I know that it's happening. I know it, that it's made real. But we, we as ministers in the church, in the school, wherever we have the opportunity, people need to be made aware. They're not gonna. They're not gonna just feel it or experience right. it unless it's made known to them. And we have to find ways. Look, somebody told me that one day, and I was like, "Wow, you know, I didn't just. None of us. Somebody's got education in the liturgy, which this document called for. We're not there yet." We're nowhere near that. And until on the catechetical end, we make adult faith formation the center of every parish, guess what? Not gonna happen. Because we need educate, you've heard me say this before, toward the liturgy, from the liturgy, and beyond. Because again, not to belabor it, but when you're standing there, you're actually participating in it. The feeling that is there that you get is undescribable. But even the lay people sitting in the pews, they're, they're there. They're I get it. Sitting in the last seat in this chapel, I'm experiencing it and I know it. But you know it. But that's my point. We have to help people become aware. They're not, they could be standing right there and not experiencing it if they don't know. And this is the whole problem. People don't understand the real presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who died and rose for us, is present right now there yeah. people need to know this I, I have to say though like if i was sitting in where you you are you may not know me and you wouldn't know that i do know that so i don't think we should just assume that yeah. people don't know it uh -huh. and i also think knowing it and it's a good point feeling it is two different oh it's definitely two different things yeah yeah because we can know it here but do we experience it here you have to know it here you have to, we, we know something in our head. Like somebody could be sitting here listening to the Paschal Mystery and then it will never go from head to heart. You know, and it, it needs to permeate our entire being. That needs to be our prayer, you know, um, that when we are preparing for the liturgy, when we get there without rushing in at the last minute as well, that we are putting our our heart saying you know jesus penetrate my whole being my mind my body my soul my heart you know so that you will be present within me i mean and this is a lifetime journey lifetime journey and we need to help bring people on this journey of faith and help them articulate it I just think that in everything we're talking That's about Hold on a minute, Carlos. Sorry. Ahead, with, with the full participation, what we're called for, I I just, I, I guess what Robert's saying makes me a little nervous because it sounds almost like you have to be in the sanctuary to experience that. And right. I, That's my That's the part that makes me... Yeah. Right. Um, because everything... Because That's, this is calling yeah. for all of us to have that no matter where we're sitting exactly. or if we are right. 
clerical or not. Exactly. That's you're exactly right. And that's what makes me a little nervous about it. And that's why I keep thinking about it because I don't want anybody to think that you have to be right there because the spirit is active. And I'm not suggesting you no, have I to know. stay in there. Yeah. But, but I know what you're saying. There. You're saying that when you are there, it's a very deep experience for you. I get that. Yeah, I'm not questioning yeah. about out there. That. that should be there. But they yeah. don't know that that feeling should be right. there. So it goes beyond that. It, it has to do with the catechetical <clears throat> issue. Because when, when I'm traveling, and if I go to Mass where I'm not participating, I, I, it's the same thing. Of course. Of course. And think about... You know, uh, I can remember being in Madison Square Garden when the Pope came and I was like, you know, in the nosebleed section and it was there. It's happening. And that's, we have to help people understand that. That's, that's our job. That whatever venue we can figure out, you know, remember I told you the story of my daughter-in-law and talking about, you know, going to mass and community and I, kind of you know went a little deeper with her because she's so interested and she said well when you put it that way wow you see you know we have to just talk about lancino and some of these other eucharistic miracles i mean isn't that an educational tool too yeah it's it is amazing it's amazing and and it and it points to and you know um Commentaries, scholars would say this. The catechesis, and I know Carlos, you have another question, but just hold on. Um, catechesis after the Second Vatican Council was not good. And part of the reason for that is when Mass was said, at least in the United States, in English, well, in every country, in the vernacular, all right, the assumption was that, well, everybody will understand it now. But that's not true. Just because it's in our own language, it doesn't mean we're going to understand the depth of the meaning here. This, this, this is a journey of faith. And it requires liturgical catechesis. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church would echo that and several other documents that we have to. And then once we know it here, then we need to bring it to the heart because any kind of faith formation can't just be here. We put too much emphasis on the intellectual. It has to move to other dimensions of our being and then it'll become real. Carlos, what did you want to say? Um, I just, uh, we just want to know like, uh, like just see if, if um, it's a hard question, but like, you know how during the consecration time, right? We, we believe that the, uh, that Jesus becomes present and he dies, um, suffers, resurrects, and ascends at the same time. Um, but how is that different from the, um, the liturgical um, like presence of Christ, um, you know, being present in the liturgy, like in the sense that he's dying, resurrecting, and ascending, and suffering? How, how is the difference? Of course, like the one in the, in the, the Eucharist, when the, during the consecration time, that's the actual uh, we're going. That's the actual event happening that we're witnessing it happening. Um, you know, like the actual event that took place two thousand years ago. We're actually witnessing it, right? Um, but now the one in the in the liturgical one, like how is 
that one uh, how would you explain that one happening is, would it be like the same like live in person event happening or just or just symbolically or mystic just um like a mystically present type no. type of, 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 of real presence. real actual presence body blood soul divinity jesus is present with us under the appearance of bread and wine transubstantiation and that's what we call it yeah and that is you know that is uh we take that on faith but that is the truth of our roman catholic faith that the and it remains you know there there are a lot of protestant churches other ecclesial communities that believe in the real presence catholics don't know that but they don't believe it remains that's why we have a tabernacle and we take such care of reposing the um or consuming the wine and reposing the hosts because we believe and that's why we have adoration of the blessed sacrament that the real presence of jesus christ body blood soul and divinity remain it doesn't go away so it's real divine life is made real for us and the best part is in and through the liturgy we're invited into it we're invited into the sharing of divine life just think about that. That's that's amazing, but that's the call. People say miracles don't happen anymore. Right. It's a miracle. Every single day, a thousand times a day around the world, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And and it's and this again, this is our journey of faith that we just it deepens and it deepens and it deepens. That when that when the now we'll we're going to read along in paragraph seven that jesus is present in many ways in the liturgy he's present in the assembly where two or three are gathered right there i am in the midst of them he's present in his word because it is jesus speaking to us in the, through the word he's present in the minister right and then it, it says i want to quote it exactly um he is present um especially under the eucharistic elements okay but we that doesn't negate that he's present in the word and the assembly and the ministers and everything all right so this that's paragraph seven very important um and, and we don't want to negate that at, at all but so jesus is present throughout but it is made it is brought to our attention, enacted for us during the Eucharistic prayer, that it is our faith should be deepened every time we hear those the words of Jesus, you know, uh, of, that the priest is saying. And when the, the host is lifted, when the cup is lifted, lift, lifted, etc., you know. Um, behold the Lamb of God. We talked about that before, that imagery of the Lamb. You know, if you read um, St. Mary Margaret Aliquoke, who uh, Jesus revealed his sacred heart to her, one of a beautiful saint. But I can't help thinking in my own religious imagination, 
Whenever the priest says, behold the Lamb of God, in my religious imagination, you know what I'm thinking? Behold my heart. And that is Jesus right there. So that's, see, that's a way of using the religious imagination. You know, how am I connecting to this? And I think of Mary Margaret Alpole, that he showed her his heart. And I just get that image. Behold my heart. And those words resonate with me every time at mass. And I can't shake it. It's just always there. Behold my heart. And what is the heart? You know, it's real. It's human. It's a person. Paul. So what do we do? So what, what do we do to get the 70% of self-identifying Catholics who don't believe in any of that, who show up for Holy Communion, not, not judgmentally. No, I know. Observation. They take, they're collecting a piece of bread, and they're consuming it, and then they're going about their business. What do we do to bring the reverence back, to, 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 to focus on the supernatural miracle that occurs at each and every Mass? To get them to to open their eyes to it, to realize what's happening, because truly, if they realize, if anybody realized what was truly happening, they would never want to leave the church. Yeah, it's true. And I think Father O'Reilly said something yeah. to that effect. The most yes. Time, two years ago. Yeah. So, so what do we do though? I, this is the part that is that Education. I always catechesis. It's catechesis. Part of it is cat. A big part of it is catechesis. Another part of it is how. The, how mass is celebrated, prayed, that the mass is prayed. That's going to make a difference. The reverence will come back if the uh, priest celebrant is reverent. Where, where is the time and place for the catechesis? Now, I know we have catechesis in, in, in religious education for our young people, and we have catechesis in, in, in adult faith formation oh, as well. Me. But is there a time and place for catechesis to take place at the Mass? I know the priest is supposed to preach about the, the readings, about the right. Word. So how do, uh, yeah. how do we do that? Homily. It can be done. It can be done creatively in a homily if it connects. And there are several opportunities connect to connect. It can be done in and through little bulletin articles, uh, website things, uh, introduce people to Bishop Barron uh, clips, you know, making, a, uh, bringing people to an awareness any way you can. And any opportunity that you have in your parish gatherings to just short and sweet. It doesn't have to be a whole, you know, but awareness. You know, I used to do it at parent meetings. Let me just make you a little bit aware, I would think to myself, of just something. And people would, oh, oh. So it's, 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 it's a real question. It's a hard question. How do we do it? We want everybody to have what we're talking about, everybody to experience what we're talking about, but we do it one step at a time. And wherever we find ourselves, we can do it if we do it for one person, like I did with my daughter-in-law, because but then they, she's going to talk to somebody else. But they have to be receptive and and receptive to and to, in order to be receptive, they have to be taught because... It's not something, if you walk into a church that 
you know, that all this talk about, not that I'm saying it's wrong, about feeling and all this other stuff, you just, I mean, unless you know what goes on in a mass, you do not really understand. And in, in that case, you don't really feel. But ask how many people in your parish, in, you know, that are sitting out in the nave know what the epiclesis is. Now, I mean, I could play the devil's advocate and say, when do you feel this? Is it when you walk into the church? Is it during the introductory rites? Is it during the communion rite? Is it during the epiclesis? When do you get this feeling? Personally, for me, it's during the epiclesis. Now, I mean, uh, you know, that's that's me. And I could be, you know, anywhere in the church and feel that. Um, but the problem is people sitting, you know, the, the, the general public sitting in the nave, you know, that are there for whatever reason they're there for, and it could be just their 42 minutes of therapy, you know, may not get that because they don't understand, they don't know. And, you know, and again, going back to your point, they have to be taught. And once they understand what the general function of the, you know, what happens during a mass and during the different parts of the mass, that's when they become receptive and that's when things start to change. Because that's what happened to me. That's right. And you know what you're talking about? Conversion. Right. We have to trust that the Holy Spirit is active in every person. And it's going to take a different journey for everybody. However, awareness. Without the awareness, I'm not saying it wouldn't happen, but the aware, making people aware through teaching. But we could do all the teaching we want about why we go to Mass and the different parts of the Mass, and nobody would be converted. We, we, we have to trust in the work of the Holy Spirit and the lives of people. And people are going to come to it at different times that we may never know about. And we have to really trust that. We can really trust it. If it happened for each one of us at different parts of our life, we have to trust that'll happen for others. You know, I mean, I don't mean to sound vague, but that's the bottom line. Because conversion doesn't happen when we want it to happen. Just because I explained the epiclesis to somebody, it may mean nothing. But in time, somebody might say, hmm, hmm. Like my daughter-in-law who said, well, when you put it that way. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yep. But that was the moment that it opened up. She heard it. And I might have said it a hundred times before, but that one particular time, you never know. So it's not to lose hope, not to give up, because you could, as a pastoral minister or a school teacher in a Catholic school, you can get very frustrated. Nobody's listening, nobody's hearing. Oh my goodness. You know, in my early days when I used to teach uh, in the diocese, uh, particularly with adult faith formation, some people thought I was like making this up. I'm not kidding that, you know, I, I, that's when I started to bring my documents with me. I, I remember once saying Christ is present in the word. Paragraph seven in the document on the liturgy and somebody I can still picture her sitting in the back raised her hand. She said, that's just ridiculous. 
Yeah. I, and you know, you know, I was like 30 and I was like devastated. Oh my God. <laughs> but it's, I talked to, you know, a priest friend of my dad and he said, you know, so from that day forward, I brought my documents with me. You know, it's just it's my opinion. So it's an in, interesting thing. People need to be ready to hear it. People need to understand that they are on a spiritual journey. Everybody's not going to get it all at once. Everybody's going to get it differently at different times. But the Holy Spirit is going to work in their life when they need it the most. And if they're already at Mass, they made the first step. Absolutely. Whether they understand, if they understand nothing, they're there. And they might start thinking about it. I think that's... Perhaps that's one of the, the equal issues is you're speaking to the people that are in mass that at least have a desire to be there. One of the big problems I think that the church has is so many people are not going to mass. You don't even have that opportunity. I know. And we need to pray for them. And I, I'm sorry if I could just yeah. I always be talking about what we're doing in Brooklyn, but I'm interested in I'm particularly interested in this conversation and, and the reaction of people because what we're experimenting with here is and, and you you all are hitting on all of this the terminology but trust is the linchpin and trust is the result of relationship and relationship is the result of revelation and dialogue and so we're looking to and what we're asking ourselves is what is the environment in which that can happen and i got myself in a lot of trouble here because i proposed that we need to bring people into community and bring people into activity at their parish level at some other connection point before we can move them into liturgy. And whew, did I get in trouble for that one? Hmm. But we are, you know, because it was just said earlier, you have people in mass and they're not, they're, they're not formed. And so formation is the key. And what is the environment in which that formation can happen? It has to happen in an environment of trust. And it's not going to be quick and easy. It's going to be, it has to be the development of a relationship. And so we're experimenting with different places in the communities, uh, parishes, ministries, uh, where this dialogue can begin to happen and certain revelation can start to happen. And then relationship is built and trust is built. And then and from that, people can start. And it is, it's a long play. This is not going to It be- is. Exactly. And to your point of, you know, what you were saying, very often it's other things that people are involved in before liturgy. I mean, that's the experience with people who commit themselves to the catechumenate. We don't bring them to liturgy. Well, we shouldn't first. Something has to happen first that they want to be there. Because it's complicated. It's complicated. It's we have complicated. to realize it is complicated. It is hard to get your head around. It is hard to come to this, um, and and it's going to require. It's going to require a lot, uh, and it has to happen in a in a in a setting where there is relationship and trust is built. Because without that, you cannot. You cannot move people to the next to the next level. To act. It, it, trust is the linchpin. It is the linchpin. I tell people all the time. It took me nine years to convince my wife to go on a date with me. So <laughs> I I understand the long play. And, um, and the longer the better. The longer the better. Yeah. So and, and that is 
I, so again, we're experimenting with it here. And the good news is, is that we're starting to collaborate with a number of other dioceses, uh -huh. Rockwell Center, the Arch, uh -huh. Bridgeport, Newark, as well as others around the country, just trying these things out to see what starts to get some traction. Right. And um, once we know this, you and I, we know this, I trust that we can give it to at least one other person. And I think the first step is that every one of us, your homework is to go home and pray for someone. Look at all the cloistered orders of nuns out there praying for us, that they could be the reason why we're here. No, no, but it's trust. So, what do you want to say? I was just going to say, I know Bob and Raphael, I don't know if anyone else is familiar with Casillo, but the statement goes, make a friend, be a, be friend. a friend, bring a friend to Christ. It worked for me, it worked for Bob. It worked for me, I wouldn't be here. I think every one of us are here because of somebody else. Oh, yeah. Every one of us are here for, because of somebody else. Absolutely. But you talked about your daughter-in-law, right? One-on-one. -on -one. And it takes time. Like, and not being afraid. Just be a witness. You know, but, and, you know, in a kind, you know, uh, non judgmental, you know, uh, speak their language, meet them where they're at. Just like Jesus did. Exactly. The road to and, his, and his disciples. This is discipleship. This and is, the first yeah. words after the resurrection, what did Jesus say in upper room? Don't be afraid. That's right. My only suggestion is to continue to be active in RCIA and catechism with the young kids uh, being confirmed and with the adults coming in looking to sort of strengthen their faith. Don't leave it up to somebody else. Oh, I did it because it was part of my second year ministry. Let's continue to do it. Don't leave it up to somebody else. Even when we're overbooked with extra work. We should always find time to go in and disciples making disciples. And it doesn't end. It has worked marvelous for me. I see a lot of people that, that went through my my uh, class and they're still going whole families getting married, kids participating in the mass and it works. Of course it but works. But love, love. Love. Don't don't go there. Why you don't believe that there is a real presence? No. With love. Right. I believe it, and because I believe it, they might believe it. And the best teacher is a good witness. Mm -hmm. You know, a good witness, a faith-filled person is the best teacher. And you may not even know that you're influencing somebody. I'm still in the back welcoming people when they when they walk through those doors before they go inside the temple with a smile and this weekend, one of the guys came up to me and says, Lucas, I'm here because you welcome me. Yeah. And it meant a lot to me. Of course. Of course. We, we're leaving it to somebody else. We're expecting it. We got to keep doing it. We got to keep giving that love. Yeah, exactly. And when we start to talk, when we... But when we get to talking about the, the, the right of Christian initiation of adults... If that is implemented well, you can transform a whole parish. And I know that from experience. And hopefully we'll get to talking about some of that. All right, I love this. Let me try to get through a couple more slides in a few minutes. 
I just, what I want to do here is just give you, um, even if I don't read through the whole thing uh, uh, and just highlight, this is actual excerpts from the document to make note of that talks that is actually what we've been talking about. So uh, paragraph five, the wonderful works of God among the people of the Old Testament were a prelude to the work of Christ the Lord. Wow. In, in Before the reform, we don't read from the Old Testament. I should have had that on my list, sorry. He achieved his task of redeeming humanity and giving perfect glory to God, principally by the Paschal mystery. Here it is of his blessed passion, resurrection from the dead, and glorious ascension. There it is, Carlos. Whereby, by dying, he destroyed our death, and rising, he restored our life. So there's mention of Paschal Mystery and what's going on. Liturgy is summit and source of the church's life. Remember that connection, all right? This uh, paragraph 10, I'm highlighting some of the key paragraphs here. This is demonstrating the relationship of liturgy to the church, meaning liturgy and the life of the people. When we say church, we mean the people of God, the body of Christ. The liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed. All right. At the same time, it's the font from which all the church's power flows. For the aim and object of apostolic works is that all who are made children of God by faith and baptism should come together to praise God in the midst of the church, to take part in sacrifice and eat the Lord's Supper. So that's what I meant before when I said we've got to help people to understand that the liturgy is the most important thing we do in this parish. I once said that to a group of parents. Somebody raised their hand and said, it's more important that I help the poor. With all due respect, I had to say, you're helping the poor flows from the liturgy and then back toward the liturgy. But the liturgy is center. And in every one of our ministries, no matter what it is, no matter who our audience is, we have to help them to understand that the Sunday liturgy is the center of everything we do the most important thing and it's right here that's what it means on this the high point of our life is the liturgy how many people can say that in our world today we've got to help bring people to come to that this is the most important thing and here it is uh, carlos this is for you because you asked a question about this paragraph eight in the earthly liturgy, we take part in a foretaste of the heavenly liturgy, celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem, toward which we journey as pilgrims, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. This is truth, but we need to put on, we need to engage our religious imagination to what this means, that every time we are participating in the celebration of the liturgy, it's a foretaste of heaven. All right, celebrating the holy city of Jerusalem. That's, you know, Jerusalem, my destiny. That's a beautiful hymn. That's heaven. That's where we want to go, right? And every time we celebrate, we participate in the celebration of the Eucharist, 
That's what's happening. But we need to be able to think with a religious imagination or that's, this is going to make no sense. A couple of years ago, I went to a funeral with my wife or a co-worker's dad. The priest was newly ordained from here. And he said, in his homily, he said, at mass, time is suspended for us. We're lifted up into the heavenly liturgy. We just, if we have the eyes of faith, we can understand it. That's and right. Just the way he said it, it was like, that's it. But that's it. And again, you know, that's not intellectual. That's here. So think about that every time. Talk about it with somebody. And they might think, well, but this is truth. And it's right here. But that sentence, that paragraph would mean nothing if we can't think, you know, um, beyond the literal. You know, we have to be able to do. Liturgy uses poetic language. You know, we have to get used to that. And it's also what's called, uh, we have to have the sacramental imagination. We'll talk more about that when we talk about sacraments. But we have to be able to do that or it's going to be all head knowledge. All right. But this is really calling us to move beyond the head to the heart. Um, I got a few minutes. Let me let me do this. Full active conscious participation is mentioned more than 14 times in this document. Where did that come from? The liturgical movement, right? Um, but it's never defined. Defined. Do we find meaning? Yeah, but not defined per se. So there's great meaning in sharing in words, music, gestures, actions, Holy Communion, nourished by the word, prayer of the faithful, offering sacrifice, offering ourselves. Think about that next time you go to mass. I can remember once being out in Huntington when I was a student there. And I remember, oh my goodness, I was at mass thinking, oh dear Jesus, I just want to throw myself right on that altar, offer myself to you. You see, my religious imagination was at work, you know? I mean, not literally, but that's how I felt spiritually. Like, I'm there. That's exactly what this is calling for. So it has an interior spiritual dimension, and it's participation in the Paschal Mystery, the death and resurrection. Don't we die and rise every day? That's the pattern of human life, dying and rising. And we bring it and we offer our dying, you know, no matter what it is, from the smallest thing to the biggest cross we're carrying, we bring it there and we put it on that altar. It doesn't get better than that. It doesn't get better than that. That's the meaning behind this. Um, just give me like two more minutes, please. Okay. The church, paragraph 14, really important. Highlight it, circle it, do whatever you have to. The church earnestly desires that all the faithful be led to that full, conscious, and active participation in liturgical celebration called for by the very nature of the liturgy. This is probably one of the most famous paragraphs of this whole document. Such participation by the Christian people as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. This is alluding to our baptism. 
right? That as the baptized, the church is calling us to this. And then remember, I mentioned ecclesiology. This paragraph 14 is recognizing the dignity of our baptism. This is reiterated in Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church. But if you, uh, uh, paragraph six in the liturgy document, thus by baptism, uh, this is one of my favorite. Thus by baptism, all are plunged into the paschal mystery of Christ. You see how it goes? We have to understand baptism in order to understand what the heck we're doing at liturgy, <laughs> in a sense, right? Because we are there gathered as the baptized, right? That we're buried, we die with him, we're buried with him, and we rise with him, etc., etc. And all of that is scriptural. It's scriptural. Oh, um, we might have to pick, yeah, we'll have to pick up here next week with this next. Norms for adapting the liturgy. I don't want to shortchange you. But I'll do what I, I'll finish with this, then we'll go right into sacraments. You good? It's a lot. But but pray with this. I, I, I beg you, pray with it. And really get it in deep into your interior. Um, and if, if it's there, make it deeper. We can. We have to always go deeper. That that's the journey, the faith journey. And there is no richer way than to take this beautiful language of the church and pray for somebody you don't know. And you never know. Miracles do happen every day. So in that spirit of prayer, we end tonight. I send you forth that assignment to pray for somebody and if you didn't hand in your midterm yet you have till mid midnight and i will watch till midnight my emails and i will say <laughs> received if you don't get an email back from me it means i didn't get it okay all right so glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end Amen. Thank you for all your hard work. God bless. Have a good week. Thank you. Ooh, so exciting. This is the most exciting thing in the world to me. You <laughs> need all this for your drive back home. I know you're driving. I'm thinking about the glass. <laughs> <laughs>